Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who have taught the hearts of your apostles by the light of the Holy Spirit, send that same Spirit into our hearts, that we may discern your will and carry it out with confidence and joy through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, St. Gregory of Nyssa, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you may know that uh, today in the Benedictine calendar is the feast day of St. Gregory of Nyssa, who was, of course, one of the great uh, fathers of the Eastern Church and who uh, influenced uh, Evagrius uh, of Pontus, who is really the, one of the primary sources for monastic theology, both in the, in the East and the West, although often unacknowledged um, because he was controversial um, uh, after his life. Um, so uh, we ask for his intercession today as well. Let me also uh, mention that today is the wake, I believe, for Dennis Donnelly's mother. Uh, I mentioned in an email that both of his parents had passed away uh, within the span of about five months over the past year. Um, so uh, please do uh, keep him and, uh, and, and the family in prayer. Um, and also pray for his parents, Margaret and John Donnelly. I also ask your prayers for uh, the novices who have not been able to make their oblation yet. Uh, there were two uh, who were not able to join us back in November because of the travel restrictions. Uh, Alex, who lives in Indiana, and Joanne, who lives in Texas. Um, so, of course, they are very eager to make their oblation, and um, I think we should keep them in prayer uh, just during this kind of period of limbo when, when they're waiting uh, to be able to come here. Also, uh, please pray for uh, several postulants who have not been able to travel here yet, again, because of the restrictions uh, to begin their novitiate. Um, Tony, I believe, uh, who lives in Indiana, and I'm trying to remember if there's another one. Not off the top of my head. I, I don't think there's anyone else from out of state. Let me give a brief update on formation. I mentioned this in my email, that we are still in need of uh, more assistance from the Oblate community um, to join in the formation of our, our novices this year. Um, I have a sheet that provides basically a, a, an introduction to this role, which we are now going to call the socius. Uh, and this is a term that is uh, drawn from the monastic tradition. It doesn't actually appear in the rule of St. Benedict, but uh, the socius was basically a companion, uh, and that often referred to the uh, being a, a companion of the office holder whom he was uh, assisting. But in this case, it also means um, assisting you know, as a companion to the novices, accompanying them during the course of their formation. Um, so there's an explanation of, uh, of the term in here, and then also a very brief sketch of the uh, responsibilities. Um, so if you're interested, uh, please feel free to take one with you. Um, 
those of you who uh, are relatively new, um, we do ask that uh, oblates gain a bit more experience before they, they volunteer in this capacity. So I, I think I wrote down in that sheet there, one year of, of novitiate and then three additional years of, uh, of oblate life before volunteering as associates. One final detail here about formation. I mentioned two sets of discussions that we'll be conducting over Zoom. Uh, and everyone is welcome to participate in these, uh, everyone from the Oblate community. Um, initially, we had thought of this as uh, formation only for the novices or for newly professed, newly um, uh, consecrated Oblates. But um, now it's going to be open to, to everyone. We have discussions of the study guide for the rule of St. Benedict by Mother Maria Thomas, whom some of you uh, read during your, your novitiate year. Um, and I have extra copies of that if anyone would like one who doesn't have one and would like to participate in the discussions. We'll also have, this hasn't yet been, uh, I, I've not yet formally committed to this just because I'm not sure how many people are actually interested, but there's the possibility of another series of discussions about uh, texts related to discernment of thoughts and the virtues. Um, so this would be sort of the next phase after formation in the rule, ongoing formation for anyone. Um, and I have a couple of books in mind uh, or sections of books that uh, I'd like to propose for this. So if you are interested, please send me an email and let me know and then I can determine whether this year we'll, we'll go forward with it. <coughs> I understand. Um, you can always check with Brother Joseph and see if uh, a book can be ordered through the book, through the gift shop. I hate to do that because I think last time somebody told me it was kind of like a half soul just to order a couple books and then what if you guys are stuck with it here? <laughs> you never sell or something. And I understand it, you know. Yeah. It, it depends on the book. So okay. it's, it's always worth asking. All right. Um, this is the schedule of... Uh, Zoom meetings for the discussion of the study guide for the Rule of St. Benedict. Um, and we've already had one with the, the novices. Uh, that was back in November. The next one will be on the 30th of this month. Um, and uh, oh, I think I neglected to mention in that, on that sheet there, that they'll take place uh, at, uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, on the fourth Saturday of the month. So uh, send me an email if you are interested in either one of those things. One final thing before I begin, uh, and that is, I think a number of you know, uh, if not all of you, that we have a solemn profession a week from today. Uh, Brother Anthony, who transferred here from our former mother house, Christ in the Desert, uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and he was, at that point, a junior monk, meaning that he had already made his simple vows and so he had already received some formation. We've continued that formation here and uh, uh, are confident that he's ready to make his solemn profession. Um, and we're, we're very grateful to God uh, for, for sending him here to us. So we hope that uh, at least some of you will be able to join us for that event. And uh, I neglected to ask Prior Peter if we need any volunteers to assist with that. 
Um, but I might send out a, an email early in the week if we need help with uh, uh, greeting at the door or, or anything else. Um, so I'd be grateful for your assistance with that. Finally, uh, you'll notice that Prior Peter is not here today. Um, I offered to give the conference today, and uh, this is not necessarily going to be a permanent arrangement. Um, we'll see uh, going forward uh, whether he'll be better, in a better position to, to give the conference or I will. But um, I just want to uh, acknowledge before the Oblate community how grateful I am to him for uh, his conferences over the years, uh, not only during the time that he was Oblate director, but uh, during the past year as I've been gradually making the transition into this role. I'm sure all of you who have been here know just how excellent his teaching is and how blessed, truly blessed we are to have him as uh, uh, superior of, of our community. Um, so uh, I encourage you to give thanks to God and uh, perhaps if occasion presents itself to thank him for his, for his teaching. Um, so today, as you know, is the Feast of the Baptism of Our Lord. And I would like to explore this mystery today, both as Epiphany and as Easter. Now, Father Brendan mentioned in his uh, fine homily that this feast comes at the culmination of the Christmas season in the contemporary Roman rite. It also comes at the conclusion of the celebration of the mystery of Epiphany. And I'm sure most of you know that Epiphany in the Western tradition celebrates uh, three mysteries, the uh, adoration of the Magi, the uh, baptism of our Lord, and the uh, miracle at Cana, uh, the first miracle that Christ performed in the presence of his disciples. You also are no doubt aware of the connection between baptism and Easter. Uh, so I won't go into that at the moment here, but suffice it to say that this mystery today is the culmination of Christmas and Epiphany, but it also looks ahead to Lent and Easter. Now, despite the fact that Epiphany celebrates events of Christ's early life, Easter actually came first. Now, what do I mean by this? I say that Easter came first in three senses. First of all, the Gospels and the whole New Testament were written in light of the mystery of Easter. There's a very fine Orthodox theologian and scholar named John Bear, Father John Bear, um, whose books we, we read here in the monastery, we read him in formation, I highly recommend him. In one of the texts that we read in our formation, he said, the Christ whom we encounter in the Gospels is always crucified and resurrected. That is to say, 
even in the events of his early life. He is the crucified and resurrected Christ. We can see this in a number of ways. Uh, First of all, the evangelists consciously present the events of his early life in terms of of images uh, drawn from Old Testament prophecy. And these are images uh, of the Exodus, of the passing through the Red Sea uh, and into new life in the the Promised Land, of exile and return, uh, also of uh, temple sacrifice, These are are images in various ways of death and resurrection. So, for instance, the slaughter of the innocents, of course, has many parallels to the the Exodus story, with uh, Herod in the role of Pharaoh, uh, slaughtering the uh, young boys of Israel. The flight to Egypt uh, that that, uh, precedes the slaughter of the innocents, and then the return from Egypt. That's also, again, modeled on uh, the the Exodus. It's modeled on uh, themes of exile and and return uh, in various places in the Old Testament. Father Brendan mentioned the presentation and purification, uh, formerly called the purification, now called the presentation, uh, in his homily this morning. And that also is modeled very much on uh, a death and, and, and resurrection, um, a, a temple sacrifice. Um, the, the rite of, of presentation was a rite of redeeming the child um, in, in a fashion analogous to the way in which God redeemed the firstborn of Israel uh, in Exodus through uh, the, the blood on the doorposts <coughs> And, uh, and the passing over of, of the angel of death, so that only the Egyptian uh, boys uh, suffered under that, that punishment. The finding of the boy Jesus in the temple is modeled on a kind of death and resurrection. His parents lose him for three days, and then they find him. Now, this is clearly Good Friday to Easter Sunday. So... Very clearly, again, we see the, the way in which these events are modeled on the Easter mysteries. But this is especially true of our Lord's baptism, which not only reveals the entire mystery of Easter uh, in a very compact way, but it also reveals the mysteries of the Incarnation and of the Trinity. And this is why it has particularly in the Christian East, been such a profound uh, locus of of reflection on the mystery of of the Trinity um, and why it, uh, particularly in icons, uh, has such a prominent place in uh, in worship, um, in in Orthodox worship, um, and, uh, and also in reflection. So these... These very short uh, uh, accounts and the Gospels give of the baptism uh, clearly are premised on these, these images of uh, a descent down into death, into the waters, a resurrection and an ascension uh, into the heavens as the heavens are opened, um, 
and then a kind of Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So the whole mystery, um, Christ taking on flesh, Christ taking on the human state, consenting to, to baptism even though he is without sin, um, as well as the revelation of the, the Blessed Trinity in the presence of the Father's voice and in the descent of the dove. So, this is the first sense in which Easter really comes first, because Easter provides the model for the way that the Gospels narrate these events. But there's another sense in which Easter comes first, and that is simply that it was the event of Easter that brought the church and the liturgy into being. In the early church, uh, Easter, or, or Pascha, as it was called, um, and by the way, uh, I, I was looking for this uh, before uh, Mass today, but I couldn't find the citation. In one passage, uh, the great scholar Origen of Alexandria uh, says that, that Christians often interpret Pascha, uh, which in Greek uh, is very similar to the verb for to suffer as suffering. But he says this, in fact, is, um, is better explained as passage. That's what, that's what Pascha means. It's a passage. Just in the, in the same way that the Passover uh, from Egypt was a passage through the Red Sea uh, into uh, new life, ultimately, after the 40 years uh, in the Promised Land. So Pascha was the first annual feast, and it, it celebrated in the very earliest period of the church's history the totality of the Paschal mystery. This begins with the Incarnation and, and continues all the way through the Passion, Resurrection, Glorification of Christ, and the Sending of the Holy Spirit in one feast. This was the great uh, Christian feast, the first annual feast. And of course, the Easter Vigil uh, and the baptisms that took place at the Easter Vigil are really the core of the liturgical year. Before there was even uh, a year and a yearly cycle, there was this one great feast. There's a third sense in which I say that Easter comes first, and that is that it comes first in each of our lives, because baptism is the gateway into the church. It's the beginning of the life of faith. Uh, the baptismal liturgy was, was the first uh, liturgy in which uh, sacramental grace was imparted to each of us. Every baptism is a kind of sacramental Easter, even if it happens outside the Easter vigil. So, both the Gospels uh, that provide an account of these events of Epiphany, uh, the, the church year, and the, uh, the feasts, the great feasts of the church year, uh, and in our own life, sacramental life in the church, in all of those respects, Easter precedes uh, Epiphany. What I'd like to explore uh, is the way in which uh, this is also true in the rule of St. Benedict, and that baptism and baptismal imagery is present throughout the rule, 
and that this is at various times a kind of Easter or, or Paschal mystery. At other times, it's, uh, it's epiphany, uh, manifestation of, of Christ and his presence in our midst. Baptism undergirds the entire rule of St. Benedict and the whole of the monastic and oblate life. Uh, in, the, in the narrow sense, this means uh, simply that, that canon law requires baptism to begin the novitiate. So all monks and nuns must be baptized. So that's the foundation. Um, it's also expected that all oblates uh, will, will be baptized Christians. Uh, certainly we, in, uh, in this period of the church's history, uh, oblation is, is open to, to all baptized Christians, uh, although that may not have been the case at various times in the past. But there's a much deeper sense in which monastic life is an intensification of the baptismal vocation and it's sometimes called a second baptism by the early fathers of the church. Now, Saint Jerome, in a famous letter to Paula, uh, is speaking about the consecration of Paula's daughter as a virgin, and he speaks of the second baptism of profession. The life of Antony by, uh, by Saint Athanasius is, uh, is also grounded in this kind of, um, this baptismal account of monastic life and monastic <clears throat> profession. Uh, he even uh, uh, shows that the monastic profession brings the forgiveness of sins in the same way that, that baptism does. Now we see this in, in our life uh, here in the monastery in a number of different ways. And uh, I'll speak about uh, those ways after I look at a few ways in which baptism and baptismal imagery, both as Epiphany and as Easter, are present in the rule of St. Benedict. Some of you may know that uh, there is a primary source for the rule of St. Benedict uh, that really illuminates so much about St. Benedict's purposes in the rule um, and about his, his reading, uh, you know, the, his library, the books he had access to. I'm wondering if, um, if, our, if our novice here knows yet, has read uh, in the, the workbook. Do you, do you recall what uh, the name of that, that source is that St. Benedict is drawing on uh, in writing the rule? Uh, the rule of the master. Very good, very good, yes. So you have been... You have been persevering uh, in, in, in making your way through uh, Mother Maria's uh, workbook. That's very good. So the rule of the master, um, I'm sure that uh, you've heard about that over the years in various ways. Much of uh, the rule of St. Benedict is drawn from, from the rule of the master. And by comparing the two, we can see, we can learn a great deal about St. Benedict. The prologue to the rule uh, is based on the, the, the prologue to the master's rule, drastically reduced. The master is very wordy. 
uh, and he goes into sometimes excruciating detail about uh, a whole range of different things related to the life of the monastery. Um, some of it can be a bit tedious, um, and, and some of it is just frankly strange. Um, it's a fascinating document, fascinating read. But you see very much St. Benedict's wisdom, because he cut out all of the strange stuff, uh, all of the tedious stuff, and left the really good stuff. Uh, and that good stuff is basically a distillation of the wisdom of the early monastic tradition, particularly from, uh, from St. John Cashin. The prologue to the Master's Rule is based on ancient baptismal catechesis. So this is catechesis that would have been very common in the early church. In southern Italy, where the Master uh, wrote his rule, uh, we think, uh, the person to be baptized was given the Our Father and some psalms uh, prior to baptism. And then the the catechesis um, that came after baptism unlocked the spiritual meaning of those, uh, of those prayers. So in the prologue uh, to the rule of St. Benedict, we see that St. Benedict has preserved the commentary on the Psalms. Uh, so the, the, the sections that, that uh, unpack Psalms 14 and 33, those are from... Uh, the master's rule from uh, the, uh, the ancient catechetical uh, uh, teachings that would have, that would have uh, unlocked the spiritual meaning of these psalms. And um, so this, this prologue in the master's rule begins with the Christian life in general, and mentions the monastic life only towards the end. And it describes basically the whole process of conversion by which someone comes to be baptized and then in the master's presentation of it, enters the monastery. A person turns from sin, finds a spring of living water, is born anew, takes on the yoke of Christ, walks his journey under the guidance of Christ, and shares in Christ's sufferings and thus attains his glory. And this is a quite lengthy presentation the Master gives us. St. Benedict edits this down drastically, but it's, I think it's important, uh, and some commentators have mentioned this, to kind of keep that in the back of your mind when you're reading the early uh, verses of the rule. Um, that although St. Benedict doesn't talk about Christian life in general at the beginning, the voice of the master who addresses us at the beginning um, uh, my son, listen to the master's teaching um, and incline the ear of your heart that is basically uh, directed to, to someone who is considering entering monastic life. We could also say considering entering the oblate life. Um, and let me get my copy of the rule here. It's significant that St. Benedict retains this, this section that says here, and the Lord seeking his workmen in the multitude of the people to whom he cries out. So this, again, it meets us, um, uh, meets the audience uh, of the rule, 
kind of prior to entering the monastery, prior to uh, entering uh, the oblate life. And so the context for that is really the baptismal vocation uh, of, of, of all Christians. <clears throat> the goal is to return to God uh, from whom we've departed, but th- which is a demanding goal, but it's not too difficult because God will bring everything to completion. The aim is new life, intense Christian life, conversion, rejection of sin, a full response to uh, the delightful voice that is calling us and uh, to the way that is pointed out by the gospel. So all of this St. Benedict preserves and all of it has a kind of baptismal uh, basis and foundation. Uh, It's catechesis and catechesis for those who are seeking to live out fully this grace of baptism that we've received. There are other verses in the prologue that also uh, have a kind of baptismal resonance to them. Uh, St. Benedict talks about renouncing self-will. To you, therefore, my words are now addressed, whoever you are, that through renouncing your own will, this is baptismal language. All of you are, are familiar with the renunciations that take place at the Easter Vigil of Satan and all of his works and all of his pomps. That comes from a very, very ancient uh, form of, again, this great feast of, of, of Christian life, uh, the Easter Vigil. For monks, it's not just sin that we're renouncing, but really anything that hinders us from following Christ. So it's an intensification of the baptismal vocation. And the renunciations for oblates are, are different, uh, but related to those that, that, that monks and nuns undertake. Another uh, bit of baptismal imagery uh, that again is very subtle, but comes straight through the master and through ancient baptismal catechesis is this. He who has now granted us the dignity of being counted among the number of his sons. Now, that is a reference to St. Paul's language of of adoption, of sonship uh, in Christ that the Father grants us through the Holy Spirit. And we should hear again all of the the references uh, in the prologue to the voice that's calling out to us um, is 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 very clearly the voice of Christ uh, who's uh, uh, speaking as a, as a father. Uh, this is different from the way in which we typically think of of Christ. Um, I'm sure you you can connect this with uh, the with St. Benedict's uh, sort of etymology of the, the word abbot, uh, that the abbot is named after a title of Christ, um, to whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We don't think of Christ as Father. Uh, we typically, I mean, there are many ways in which we think of Christ uh, as Savior, as Lord, as God, as man, as brother, um, uh, the first among many brothers, but we don't often think of him as a father. 
Um, but in, in, this is a, a, a theme that's present in, in a number of patristic works and that it shows up here in, in, in the rule and it's really essential to understanding the rule, essential to understanding the way in which uh, Christ as, as Father has begotten new children in baptism and that this baptismal vocation undergirds uh, this, this intensification, uh, this new life um, of conversion that we're being called to in the rule. Now I would, uh, so I, I made the reference to the, the Easter Vigil uh, in the language of renunciation. I would say again that this, this language of being counted as sons is also Easter language. This is language uh, of sort of entrance into a new way of life. What about epiphany language? What about baptism as epiphany? I think there are two uh, clear references to that in the prologue. Uh, that I'd like to point out. The first is more obvious. This comes several verses after uh, the language about sonship. Let us then at last arise, since the scriptures arouse us, saying, it is now time for us to rise from sleep, and let us open our eyes to the deifying light. Let us attune our ears to what the divine voice admonishes admonishes us, daily crying out. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The divinizing light, or deifying light, uh, this, again, is language that is very common in the Eastern Christian tradition. Uh, It's also present in the the West, uh, but probably not as familiar to, uh, to many contemporary Catholics. The, the light that St. Benedict, and this is one of the very few references to light in the rule. The light that St. Benedict is talking about here is the light that comes from the scriptures. This is a kind of epiphany. Uh, it's suddenly the spiritual meaning of the scriptures opens up before us uh, through the assistance of the Holy Spirit uh, and awakens us and, and calls us forth and we see uh, this manifestation of Christ in our midst, suddenly, in a new way. Uh, that is the, the essence of the mystery of, of the epiphany. That's the essence of, of the, uh, the visitation of the Magi and adoration, uh, that they, first of all, the star points out uh, the place where Christ is, but then they point out who Christ is by the gifts that they give him. Uh, and the, the frankincense in particular, which uh, shows that they understand he is God and that they adore him as God. In the baptism uh, that we celebrate today, of course, it's very clear the Father's voice points out that this is, this is my son, my beloved son. Um, and the descent of the Holy Spirit um, shows that Christ is the anointed one, the promised Messiah. Um, the, the wedding at Cana is uh, also uh, an uh, epiphany mystery because of the way in which Christ's miracle reveals uh, to his disciple. This is his first miracle, um, and they believe in him. They see his glory. Uh, they, they see his, his divinity, perhaps, uh, in, in a kind of uh, inchoate way, begin to, 
to, to glimpse that and to, to be open to that. So this divinizing light, uh, and notice again the way that light plays a role in, in all of the, the uh, mysteries of Epiphany, this divinizing light that St. Benedict is talking about in the, in the prologue here is something that is present in many subtle ways throughout the rule and the monastic life. Um, and I would like just to point a few of them out to you. Uh, again, this is all related to, to baptism and to the baptismal vocation that really undergirds the rule. Um, first of all, an epiphany that, that the prologue testifies to um, in a very clear way reveals our goal Verse 21, let us walk his paths that we may deserve to see him who has called us into his kingdom. We may deserve to see him. This is really a, a beautiful promise. This is the goal of the monastic life. It's the goal of the Christian life. The beatific vision in heaven. In order to, to deserve to see this, uh, we must um, be prepared with the help of God's grace. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So purification of heart is one of the ways in which, say, John Cashin talks about the, the monastic life, the work of the monastic life, of the active life. Um, it's the work of uprooting vices and planting virtues. It is this, this active work that purifies our vision to see what St. Benedict refers to in chapter 4 as what eye has not seen nor ear heard. Again, this is a kind of epiphany that comes to us through practicing uh, the, the works of the monastic life, through entering the monastery, through entering the oblate life. This epiphany... Uh, of um, this vision of God, which, which is promised to us um, in heaven, but which also is available to us in, the, in, in glimpses, in foretastes uh, here in this life. This is what St. Benedict is referring to uh, really from the outset of, of the rule. He's setting forth our, our goal. So what are some other ways in which uh, we, we are granted this, this epiphany? Um, I would again connect uh, a number of these with, with baptism. Um, St. Benedict often talks about beholding the presence of Christ in the abbot. Uh, the abbot in particular is the one who holds the place of Christ in the monastery. That's not something that we will see unaided. It requires the eyes of faith. And I can tell you from experience, um, it, it cannot uh, be revealed to us except through uh, cooperating with God's grace, making an act of faith, um, gradually growing uh, into a new kind of vision, a new kind of, of seeing. Uh, when the newcomer <laughs> first arrives in the monastery, um, he, he, he understands that obedience is what's required of him. 
Um, but even when he obeys, he's conscious of the fact that his obedience um, is, is self-interested. Um, you know, the fathers talk about uh, the different kinds of, of obedience. There's the obedience of the slave um, that, that simply is offered out of fear. I'm afraid I'm going to get punished. <laughs> uh, I can remember this as a postulant or novice. Uh, one difficulty I had when I was a newcomer to the monastery was breaking things. Um, I, I hadn't thought of myself as a klutz beforehand, but let me tell you, it was astounding. I mean, coffee mugs, uh, machinery of various kinds. Um, uh, vessel, I, I actually dropped a, a, a chalice uh, in the sacristy at one point uh, and damaged it. Uh, I mean, left and right, I was dropping things, breaking things. Um, I was afraid, I was deathly afraid. Um, my, my superiors helped me in various ways, um, tried to counsel me to walk more slowly and to be more careful with things. Um, what was really governing me was fear at that point. I simply did not want to break anything else. So my, my obedience, my um, uh, attempts to, uh, to, to be faithful to this command, don't break anything, <laughs> um, was, uh, was entirely self-interested. Um, understandable. That's where we all start. Over time, that obedience has to grow. And so the fathers talk about uh, how the obedience uh, offered in fear can grow into an obedience that's offered uh, for a goal. And maybe that goal is, is um, spiritual attainment of some kind. Maybe it's advancement you know, in the monastery. Um, maybe it's just uh, the the approval uh, of, of one's superiors. Again, these aren't necessarily bad things. Um, they are lesser goods, uh, lesser, lesser goals. Um, it, is, it is still uh, an immature kind of obedience. But then finally, there's the obedience of the son. And the obedience of the son is offered simply in love because the son uh, desires to do <coughs> the father's will because he loves the father. And uh, that... That is true baptismal sonship uh, growing into its full realization um, when that, that obedience, when all of the, the virtues of the active life are offered out of love, um, simply with a desire to be with the Father. There's certainly an analogy in, uh, in the way that the, the early period of monastic formation uh, gradually sort of trend you know, gives us this, this basis for uh, growing beyond these immature motives uh, into, into more virtuous ones. So once we, we grow into this greater degree of, of virtue and love, we can begin to see that the command is actually coming from Christ. That it's Christ who's speaking uh, in the superior, in, in this very intimate and... Um, and fatherly way um, for our good because he loves us. And the eyes of faith will be open to this epiphany um, to the extent that, that a, a newcomer to the community can, can cooperate more and more with, uh, with what God is seeking to do in him uh, through all of the works of the monastic life. So this is uh, an epiphany um, to see the presence of Christ in the abbot. 
It's also an epiphany to see the presence of Christ in the sick or in the guests. Uh, again, it's, it's, it can be a challenge, can be a real challenge, um, because the monastic life can be very demanding, um, and it, it can often feel as though every moment of our day is scripted. And so then when somebody shows up unexpectedly at the door, uh, asking for a blessing or, or asking for uh, uh, whatever it is, uh, a brochure or, 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 you know, spiritual counsel or a sandwich or um, a place to stay, I mean, any number of different reasons people come, it, it can be difficult to see Christ in that. Um, instead, I just see sort of another demand or I see a... Uh, an obstacle to, to carrying out all these other things that I'm supposed to be doing. I'm sure this can be familiar, you know, to, to, to your own experience as well in various ways. Um, that when something unexpected intervenes, um, you're often caught off guard and you revert to uh, impulses and behaviors that, that, are pretty, that are pretty unevangelized, pretty unredeemed. <laughs> Um, now, how do I see Christ in that? How can, I, uh, how can I undergo an epiphany there, receive the epiphany that God is, is, is offering me? Because he's always offering these epiphanies in various ways. I think uh, it's important to, to point out something that Prior Peter often mentions here, and that is that the interior turmoil that we often experience in those situations is actually Christ. Christ is present in that. He uses the example of um, Christ driving the money changers out of the temple. Um, It can look like uh, a violent act. Um, It certainly is the act of of one who is zealous for the temple, who is zealous for God's holiness. Um, it leads to an uproar, you know, tables being turned over and, and uh, uh, sacrificial animals sort of being, being probably set free and, and uh, you know, money being scattered all over the place. He's using a whip of cords. Christ is, is also active in, in the guest uh, who comes at an unexpected time in that same way. Um, he, he's driving out the selfishness, you know, the, the thoughts of self-regard and of uh, self-interest that all of us carry around with us and that are in various ways subtly compromising our good works. So he wants those to, to, to come to light, to be illuminated, you know, in the light of, of his presence, and then to, uh, to, to help us to drive them out. Uh, so that the temple of our, of our bodies can be purified, made a holy dwelling place for, for his Holy Spirit. So that, I think, is one way in which the guest uh, can be an epiphany, even when he comes as a, or she comes as a real challenge to us, uh, unexpectedly. The same is true, I think, with the, with the sick. Uh, the, you know, the sick can be very... Uh, can be very demanding. When we're sick, you know, we, we, we're miserable. We know that quite well. Um, and uh, if any of you have suffered from chronic illness, you know that uh, probably in a way that I don't understand. 
Um, we have some brothers in our monastery who have chronic illnesses. And um, I'm, I'm edified, often quite edified, by the way in which uh, some of those brothers just simply go about their, their daily responsibilities um, with a cheerful disposition, um, not drawing attention to themselves, when they're actually in a lot of pain. And they're actually uh, uh, suffering uh, in various ways. They're, they're really struggling just to, just to get to the office, just to finish their work, but they don't complain. Um, we, we know that uh, in our times of, of sickness, uh, we're probably inclined to make demands on people. Um, probably inclined to take special exceptions for ourselves. Understandably. Can we see the sick? Can I look at, at someone who maybe is, is, whose weakness is revealed in that time of sickness? Can I look at that person and see Christ? Um, Christ who, who, who bore our infirmities. Um, can I see Christ uh, also perhaps purifying me in the same way that, that we spoke about in regards to the guest? It'll be different in each situation. Um, the goal is to be open to these epiphanies of Christ's presence and to recognize that it is the grace of, of baptism um, that provides the power by which we can uh, we can open ourselves uh, to see these, these illuminations um, and revelations of Christ's presence. There are uh, several um, references in, in the rule, and I'll just touch on these very briefly, um, to, uh, to baptism, uh, excuse me, to, to um, uh, ritual washings, um, and, and even to, to exorcism. And those, I think, again, in the way that uh, we, we talked about, um, uh, actually, you know what, I will, I will set those aside, and instead I'll talk about um, the ways in which, in our uh, contemporary practice, um, solemn profession offers us a number of <coughs> examples of, of baptism as, as Pascha. notes here. Ah, okay. So we are going to have a solemn profession in a week. And uh, I think what this will offer an occasion uh, for those who attend to do is not only to, to see these these elements of uh, baptismal imagery um, and baptismal theology um, in the profession rite, but also to see the parallels with the, the rites of oblation that we did back in November. 
one of the reasons that, that we decided to make use of those new rights is that they parallel much more closely than did the, the ones we were using previously, the rights uh, of monastic initiation and profession. So the profession ceremony features uh, scrutinies, uh, questions from the superior, and then answers. Um, and these were very much part of the ancient rites of the catechumenate and baptism, uh, which uh, uh, if you have, say, been uh, a confirmation mentor, um, or you maybe yourself have, have gone through RCIA, I don't know if we have any, any converts in here today. Um, the new rites for Christian initiation that were uh, revised and promulgated after the Second Vatican Council, very consciously sought to restore these elements of, ancient, of the ancient Easter vigil rite and of the ancient catechumenate that had gradually uh, been lost over the course of the centuries. And um, so the, uh, the, the candidate is, is, is asked, you know, uh, what it is that he's seeking uh, or she is seeking and um, is you know, examined as to the, the character of, of his or her life. Um, this is present in this new rite of oblation, uh, as you may recall. Uh, following the, the scripture reading and uh, the brief homily, the celebrant uh, says, what do you ask? And the novice oblate responds, the mercy of God and fraternal union with you as an oblate of this monastery. Uh, then uh, the celebrant goes on to ask, you have read the rule of St. Benedict and tried to become acquainted with it. Do you intend to observe its teachings that you may better live the Christian life? And the novice says, I do. So these are very brief, um, but, but very much uh, modeled on this ancient uh, baptismal practice. And, um, and we really find the, the proper place for these, the source and origin of these in the Easter Vigil Liturgy. Um, when the the one making solemn profession lies under the pall. I know that some of you have been to solemn professions before, um, and so you've seen this. He's being buried with Christ in baptism, uh, just as he was in baptism, in order that he may be raised with Christ. In these uh, new ceremonies that, that we used last November, the oblate novice kneels. So there's a kind of equivalent to that, to that laying under the pall. Um, a similar act of, of uh, kind of self-emptying. <clears throat> the Litany of the Saints. Again, this finds its home in, in the Easter Vigil Liturgy. It also appears in, in Rite of Solemn Profession. It appears in these new oblate ceremonies, these new oblation ceremonies. Some of you who uh, have, have been present at, uh, at baptismal ceremonies uh, will be familiar with uh, the baptismal garments. Um, the cowl, the monastic cowl that's, that's given at solemn profession is a sign of consecration in the same way that uh, the white uh, baptismal gown is. Uh, 
some oblates are uh, given a scapular to wear uh, at their oblation. So it's, a, it's a, again, a, a similar uh, symbol. The ancient uh, rite of baptism and also the modern RCA rite also includes exorcism. Uh, these are, particularly in the ancient forms, they're, they're quite striking uh, in, in just how emphatically they, they insist on you know, the, the importance of uh, sort of the battle with the demonic as an essential part of preparation for baptism, and then baptism itself is the defeat of the demon. Um, I was struck by the fact that the new rite for, um, for initiation into the novitiate that we made use of also has an exorcism of the medal, uh, the Benedictine medal. And this is not something we had had before, but I think, again, it's, it's very clearly a parallel with um, uh, the Easter Vigil liturgy. So these are the way in which monks enter the monastery and the way in which oblates enter into the oblate community and the oblate life. They stand on that, on that boundary uh, between, between the world and uh, the church, uh, which itself is, is a foretaste of the kingdom. It's the kingdom already present in our midst. Um, and this passage, this pasca, you know, across that, that, that boundary uh, into, across the, 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 the Red Sea on dry ground into the, into the promised land, um, that is uh, a, a baptismal theology that is really at the heart of the monastic life. And it's something that, uh, again, it comes first, it comes first, um, but what I want to conclude with is that it also comes last. Um, and what I'm referring to is uh, our death, each of us. You know, we will die. And uh, that will be uh, our final passage uh, into the fulfillment of all that we've been seeking, um, of uh, what St. Benedict promises uh, at the outset of the rule, uh, that we will deserve to see him who has called us into his kingdom. Uh, we, we have uh, several uh, oblates now who are, who are elderly, uh, quite elderly or, or uh, ailing, um, uh, one of whom uh, has uh, terminal cancer, as you know. Um, what I would like to encourage you to do is to, to pray for them in light of the fact that um, the death for a, a monk and this should also be the case for all Christians, but we see it particularly in the monastery, is the final act of self-offering, the final act of oblation, of, of self-gift um, uh, to God in the same way that we, we are offered uh, in, to God in the sacraments of the initiation. We're offered to God in the, the rites of initiation and oblation, um, the rites of solemn profession, uh, whether we're monks or oblates, uh, the, the proper set of rites for that particular way of life. 
the fulfillment of that, uh, that oblation, that self-offering, comes when we hand over our lives to God. Um, and we pass over, we make our passage uh, into eternity. Um, so that, uh, that final passage awaits all of us. Uh, it came first, but it will also come last. And what that will enable is the great epiphany, the final uh, fulfillment of epiphany uh, in the beatific vision uh, that we hope to enjoy in heaven. And with that, I will end um, and we'll uh, open the floor to any questions that you might have. Thank you for your patience as I made my way through my first conference here. Um, and uh, uh, I will hope, I hope to grow uh, in, in my uh, capacity to, to teach um, in a way that is, that is edifying. So thank you. Any questions? Yes. Could you just back up for a second? Sure. The rule of the master. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just curious to know if you said that Benedict excised uh, some of the strange stuff. Yes. I wonder what that was. What are some examples of that? Oh, there are, there are all sorts of, of, of frankly odd things in, in the rule of the master. Um, let me see if I, can, if I can think of a good one here. Um, well, one thing. Uh, that I, I, I couldn't help but laugh at this when I read it uh, as a, must have been as a novice, was that the master prescribed, I mean, again, he, he, he's remarkably precise and detailed in his prescriptions. Um, I will say in his defense that that is a good thing um, because it was something of, represented something of an advancement in the monastic tradition. Um, his rule is much more detailed than any preceding rule. Um, and... Uh, his, his, say, organization for the life of the monastery, for the liturgy, represents a, a development in the tradition. So that's a good thing. But he goes too far. And one of the ways in which he goes too far is he prescribes that in the uh, refectory every day, after the meal is finished, that the monks are to sweep up all the crumbs from the tables and to make like a new dish out of those crumbs <laughs> and that then, then uh, I, I'm, does everyone have to eat it I, I don't recall exactly what happens to that dish but that he, he's very insistent that a, a, a dish be made out of the crumbs and that that be eaten <laughs> a little strange yes the reason it's called the rule of the master is that um, we don't know um, he refers to himself as, as the master uh, and that's why we call him the master. Um, any other questions? If not, we will uh, conclude, and um, uh, we will adjourn until next time. Hope to see uh, uh, some of you at the, uh, the Solemn Profession uh, next Sunday, and uh, look forward to hearing from you Please remember to take uh, a sheet if you'd like and um, to send me an email if, you, if you're interested in participating in either of those uh, uh, opportunities. So thank you very much and God bless you. Let's end with a prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, 
pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen.